0: Okay, well, we're continuing in Romans, and we're going to go back a little bit in chapter three, starting verse 21. I covered that to chapter four last week, but we really can't move through chapter four without re-examining what we talked about in in chapter three, so we're going to do that quickly, but as we begin again, we have to understand, alert, alert, alert. We have to remember the context that Paul is writing in. As he's dealing with the church at Rome, he's dealing with a divided church. He's dealing with a, a group of Jewish Christians, those who grew up in the Hebrew thought, and they are now coming back to Rome. Remember, uh, the Christians had been exiled or the Jewish uh, people had been exiled from Rome just previously because of some instigations and problems. And so now they're coming back and it's causing friction between those Gentile Christians who are already there. And we might think of that as sounding a bit strange, but we have to understand that the faith that we have as followers of Christ, was birthed from this belief system. And so we've been talking about that belief system for a period of weeks now, where the Jewish mindset and understanding of who God is was different from the Roman Greco mindset of what God was or gods were as there were many gods and this understanding of faith in Christ is now bringing unity between these two groups of people where you've got the Hebrew mindset of God, and now the Greco-Roman mindset of what God was, and you're bringing that in together to understand. And so what Paul is trying to do is fuse these cultures together to be one where they have the, this common understanding and theme. And his point of doing this was to bring unity into this faith so that this faith could then be useful to the purpose of God throughout the rest of the world. And so understanding that helps us to see what Paul is trying to say because he's being very specific as he's talking to the Jewish mindset about the idea of what it means to be uh, considered righteousness. Considered righteous, excuse me. We've talked about that idea of what it means to be righteous. How, How do we know what that is? Well, the righteousness... And just living by faith is something that is connected to the covenant relationship of God. Now, when did God make a covenant with the Jewish nation? Abraham, Abraham. okay? And and so we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn to it just yet. In Genesis 15, we have the covenant that took place with Abraham, And so when God said to Abraham, or when it was accounted to him as righteous, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. What that means is that God saw him as right because of the covenant that he made with God. It's not just because Abraham believed, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as as being righteous. And so it wasn't just that Abraham was righteous, it was that Abraham believed what God told him. What did God tell him? He said, I am going to bless you, I am going to use you and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so that's kind of the starting point that we're beginning. And just to start off, we're gonna go quickly, chapter three, verse 21, it says, but now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been made known. Now, apart from the law is the Torah. Apart from the Torah, that law that was given to the Hebrew nation. So the Torah, the law, came after the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so he's saying here that apart from the law, the righteousness of God had been made known. Remember, it's the righteousness of God, not the righteousness from God. And it's very important because this is what he's building on. The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law, the Torah, and then the prophets that would come later on all testify to this point where God made an agreement with Abraham. They're declaring what God has done. The law is going to build on that understanding. This righteousness, verse 22. What righteousness? The righteousness that belongs to God, the righteousness of God through faith. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus Christ. It's real important that we understand that the righteousness comes through the person of Jesus Christ. To who? to all who believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this righteousness, the righteousness that is of God has been given in faith through Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ. Israel had been unfaithful with dealing with the sin of the world. And so they weren't the light of the world. And so God gave the promise, said, I'm going to bless you. Well, the nation was given the law. They failed to keep the law. And so they failed in their responsibility. But Jesus fulfilled that responsibility, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how God is going to bless the world to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And you're going to hear this thing, Jew and Gentile, to all who believe. And he's talking about Jew and Gentile. That's Again, the platform that we're talking about, that's the division. There's a lot of racial division, a lot of prejudice that's taking place at this time. The Jews want nothing to do with the Gentiles. They're considered unclean. The Gentiles want nothing to do with the Jews. They don't like their laws. They don't want to have to eat kosher food. They like bacon and other things. Okay, They're, they're used to their way of living and they're not wanting to change. And so there's this tension that's there. Well, we believe in Jesus. We don't need your Jewish laws. Well, we are Jews, and so we have the history. And so you have to believe the things that we believe because we're the foundation of your faith. And that's the problem that's taking place here. And so Paul is saying, it's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what was the glory of God? The glory of God was the dominion over. And remember, Adam was given dominion. He had the glory that came from God, created in God's image, because he was to rule the world. The nation of Israel was to have the glory of God. God gave them his law, but they failed to keep the law. And so the glory of God has to do with the dominion that is there. All have sinned far short of keeping God's standard, living according to the law that God had given to them to have dominion over the earth. All and all, verse 24, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And so we all had to go back to the place where God is fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham, but he did it through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement and through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Now, why is the shedding of blood demonstrating God's righteousness? Why do you think? How is that demonstrating God? Well, isn't God already righteous? How is the shedding of blood demonstrating God's righteousness? Again, it goes back to the agreement that God made with Abraham. God is keeping his covenant. And so the shedding of blood, Jesus giving his life, is fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. And it's proving that God is righteous. And so that's the mindset that's going on because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He didn't deal with the sin of Israel completely. Yeah, they were in exile, but he had to deal with them. How did he deal with them? He dealt with them in the person of Jesus fulfilling his part of the agreement because in his forbearance, he had left those sins committed beforehand unpunished. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. And so he's demonstrating his righteousness at the time that Paul is writing. And remember this idea of righteousness is an eschatological term. It has to do with God making things right. Well, in the Hebrew mind and in many Protestant minds today, the idea of God making things right is going to happen somewhere after the end of the world and God comes back. And Paul is saying he's made it right at the cross in the person of Jesus. That's when God's righteousness was demonstrated. Why? Because he dealt with sin and he made it right then. Not at the end of all things, he made everything right then, which is going to be something that we have to deal with again later through this book. To demonstrate his righteousness, he did this so that to be just and to... Okay, let's... Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded Now, what would they boast in? What are you boasting in? What is the person going to boast in? What are they boasting in because of the law? The law requires works. No, because of literally the law of faith. And he's not saying we're boasting because we're so good. That's not the purpose of the boasting. The boasting is is what took place, again, in the Hebrew mind. Verse 8, it says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? And again, the answer is obviously no. Why is this here? Because of the schism that's there between the Jews and the Gentiles. Since there is only one God, this is coming down to the heart of the Hebrew matter. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, a summation of the Hebrew thought. What is the total idea of the law? What is the law there? What is the summary of the law? It would be, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then Jesus redefined it, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is the heart of the law, the summary of these things. And so God is the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law of this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. Now, remember, the works of the law, no one is going to be justified by the works of the law What were the works of the law that Paul is talking about here? We talked about three things last time, and it's important because he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's talking about things that are specific to the Hebrew mindset, and the first thing was circumcision. The second thing was the Sabbath, and then the third thing was the dietary or purity laws. Diet, how do you spell dietary? A-R-Y. Huh? A R Y. Dietary laws. So, those are the works of the law that Paul is referring to. Okay, it's not all of the law, all of the commandments. He's talking about those things that notified them ethnically as being Jewish, because that was their boast. What they were saying is, I have the right to God's favor because I am a descendant of Abraham and I have God's law and I have been circumcised and I keep the Sabbath and I don't eat the wrong things and I prepare things the right way. That makes me entitled to God's favor. And Paul is saying, all these things came after the covenant. The agreement that God made with Abraham took place before all the works of the law. All those things that you are claiming, therefore you can't boast because well, I'm Jewish, I'm of the lineage of Abraham, I have the Torah, I have the law, I boast in those things. No, you can't boast in that. Because the covenant took place before that. And so that's where we're picking up here in chapter 4, verse 1. And before we read chapter 4, I want to turn us to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to read the actual covenant that God made. Genesis chapter 15. It's a short chapter and it's interesting. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness, as a covenant faithfulness. It's important to understand. That's the terminology that's being used. Verse seven says, So also, so he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that you will gain that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to cut to him, cut them in two halves, arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So what's taking place here is he's cutting the animals, he's separating them. The idea of a covenant is two people. Would make an agreement. They would cut the animal in half, they would separate the animals, and they would both walk through in between the halves of the animals. And it was signifying that what has happened to these animals may it happen to us if we break this agreement that we have with one another. In other words, we are bound, and it's serious. To each other. That's the idea of cutting the animals in half, separating. I know we're sitting here going, "What the heck is this all about?" Right? Is he cutting animals and laying them and chasing birds away? What's going on here? So that's the idea of what's supposed to be taking place here. Verse 12 it says, "As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep." and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Who's he talking about? Egypt, okay? But, verse 14, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi to Egypt of the great river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Chazazites, Kadamazites, Hittites, Perazites, all these other people. Um, And so something that's interesting to notice in this covenant that's being made where this light, this flashing fire pot goes through and passes through these pieces of animals, Abraham didn't walk between them, only the Lord did. God is the one who upholds both ends of this covenant. God is the one responsible not only for his part, but he's actually taking responsibility for Abraham's part. Which is important because the covenant that God makes with Abraham, if it was up to Abraham, well, then his descendants would have to fulfill and keep the covenant. Well, they didn't. God gave them a law. They couldn't keep the law. They went into idolatry. There was all kinds of immorality. And so they fell. The Babylonians took them. And then we see that they were persians conquered them we see now here they're living in the romans have conquered them and the egyptians had conquered. i mean man if they're god's people they sure live in you know slavery for a long time what's going on they did not keep god's command and so god would use these to show them the error of their ways you you've disobeyed my law and so you go into the hands of others because you wouldn't serve under my rule if it was up to abraham's children the covenant would have fallen apart and that's why they were in exile but what god did is that i am going to make and raise up a faithful israelite who will keep that part of the program and that was who jesus was the faithful israelite so let's go back now to chapter four this chapter that we read is what Paul is referring to, okay? This is what Paul is talking about as he's dealing with the idea of the covenant and the faithfulness of God. It's from Genesis chapter 15. So in chapter four, he says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter? And really, this is such a strange verse and the way it's written out, what we really need to have it written out and saying is, what shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? What's the answer to that? It's no. He's not our forefather according to the flesh, especially if you're in Rome and you're coming from a different background he's not my forefather according to the flesh you see but what he's pointing at is he's not your forefather according to the flesh but as he's going to get to later is show that he is though your forefather by grace and through faith now for some reason my kindle did not update which all my notes were on, and that's not a good thing. So let me see if it's updated on my phone. Otherwise, my memory is going to be called into question. And so let's read verses one through eight. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, had discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credited righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And, And so we see that Paul is picking up here right where he left off or where Genesis 15 leaves off. Bear with me a second while I get my notes. I thought they would be here, but they're not. Oh, technology, you betrayed me. Oh dear, they're not here either. Okay, let's go. Abraham's family is characterized not by race. It's not by the Torah. It's nothing except in believing in the the covenant that God has established. And so it's important that we see that what God is trying to do here is establish in Abraham a new family, a family that is containing both the Hebrew and the Gentile, family that has with it both people. And as that's being established, we're dealing with, again, the problems that were there between them, the the fractions that were taking place between both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he says, what shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? The answer is no. If he was, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. Now remember, what were the works? If Abraham was justified by the fact that he was circumcised or kept the Sabbath or had these dietary laws, well then he would have something to boast about. Those are the things that he did, but it was recognized that he was righteous according to faith based on his covenant that God made with him. That took place before the law ever took place. And so how can he can be considered, how can he be considered righteous or right before God by keeping the law when God said he was right before the law? And so he's presenting an argument that's real important that they recognize and understand, because in this argument, what he's doing is showing the Hebrew people that your own forefather was considered right before God, before the things you use to claim that you have a right to God's privilege because of. In other words, you're saying because of the Torah, we're right before God, because we keep these laws, because I'm circumcised, I keep the Sabbath. Therefore, I'm right before God. And he says, that's not right. You have to go back further. And by going back further, we see that you're actually nullifying your own argument in the things that you do because what God said was that he were righteous before these things took place. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. And again, when we think of righteous, we think of, well, you're right before God, but what it's saying is that he was in the right relationship with God because of the relationship that God made with him. And so it's important that we recognize that. Yay, there's my notes. They came back. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know if you could tell I was stalling and panicking there, but I was. Okay, and so now, verse four, now the one who works wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. And so he's using a secondary metaphor. He's using a metaphor to help us understand about this covenant. This is not the primary metaphor. It's actually the secondary metaphor. Okay. Those who work wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteous. You see, the badge of the covenant membership is the same as that of Abraham. You know, when you go into a function and you don't know anyone, they give you one of those stickers that says, my name is, well, the badge of covenant faithfulness, God says, you are my people has to do with faith and trusting in God, not with being a person who keeps the law. That is your sticker saying, oh, I'm with God. Why? Because of your ethnicity? No. Why? Because you do the right things? No. But because you believe like Abraham did, therefore he gives you that covenant badge membership that says, I belong to him. And then he gives another illustration that David used in the Psalms. And it's so interesting because he says, Blessed is the one whom God credits righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Isn't it interesting that this example is found in the Old Testament? You know, I've always thought, how can the Old Testament have these kinds of claims when Jesus had not yet come, how could David talk about blessed is the one to whom God does not impute sin? How can he claim that? That's our promise, isn't that? How can this be true of an Old Testament person? How is it true? It's true through the promise God made with Abraham. And so they have claimed to it because of what God did We have claimed through it because of what God did ultimately in Jesus. But it's the same promise. You see, God's promise to Abraham is seen in the person of Jesus, and we hold on to it just like David could, we can. Why? Because it was God's faithfulness, because it was God's, promise because god kept that covenant because god walked through that those two animal parts as strange as that seems god is the one who kept those promises and so david could say blessed is the man to whom god doesn't impute sin whose sin will never count against him how can you say that david you have to atone for your sins. You have to keep the law. No, David knew that it was God's promise. And we're seeing here that God's intention all along was this covenant relationship. You see, God did not promise Abraham, give the Hebrew people the law, but, you know, they didn't keep the law. So God said, okay, scratch that. Let me start over. I'm going to do something through Jesus. That's not the way it's working. God's intention all along is I'm going to make an agreement with you and I am going to keep the agreement with you. Yes, I have called you to be the light to the nations, to bless the world. Remember, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. You're entrusting someone to do something. If I were to entrust Kathy to give a message to Mike, is the message for Kathy? No, it's for Mike. Mike. I'm entrusting her to give the message. Well, the nation of Israel was entrusted with the law of God for themselves. No, to be an example to the world, but they failed. They couldn't do it. God didn't say, well, I better find another way. God said, well, I am still going to do it, but it's gonna be done through the person of Jesus now instead of through the entire nation." And so he goes on in verse 9, and we'll read 9, let's read 9 through 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but not, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised But who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so he is pointing out to them the order of things. Now, you have to, again, enter into the time and what's taking place. Imagine you're a Hebrew. Your whole life has grown up knowing the law, keeping the law, following the law. You had volumes of information given to you how to keep the law. Well, how am I to keep the Sabbath? What does that mean? Well, you know, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, what does it mean not to work? What happens if I have a donkey and a donkey falls into the pit? Is it work to go and get my donkey and take it out of the pit? Well, yes, that's considered work. But it's also in the law that I am supposed to preserve and care for my animal. So how am I, am I breaking the law by not helping them? And so they'd have volumes written just about those kinds of things. Can you keep the law? Should you keep the law? What about this? What about that? And, you know, we do the same thing. It would be surprising, but Christians have made the New Testament a new Torah. Well, can you go to the movies? You know, there was a time where if you played cards, it was sinful. Or if you went to the movie theaters, it was wrong. Well, you can go to the movies, but it has to be rated G. Well, I don't even know. Are there any movies rated G anymore? It has to be rated PG. (laughs) PG. You know, well, what if you're over 13? Is it PG-13? Okay, well, you can't go to, I remember at a men's conference one time, someone says that they will not go to any R-rated movies. And this becomes their new Torah. This is how we're gonna show that we're right before God because we won't go to any R-rated movies. Then the Passion of the Christ came out and it was rated R and they went to it. Oh no. Well, you can go to some R-rated movies as long as there's not this, this, and this in it. Okay, and all of a sudden you're, you're trying to divide. Well, how do you live? How do you live? What, what are the things? And so just like the Hebrew mind had all these laws about what to do, how to do these things, trying to keep this law. All of a sudden these people come and they say, well, we believe in Jesus too. Well, how well, how can you just come in and start believing in Jesus? Don't you realize that we have kept ourselves pure? We have followed the dietary laws. We have kept Torah as best we can, and now you're going to just come and be a part of God's people? That's not fair. We have done so much. We deserve something more. And Paul is saying, really? Who is your father? Well, our father is Abraham. He is the father of our faith. Well, when was Abraham right before God? It was before all of this. And so if you want to claim him as your father, he was was the father of faith because he trusted God and it was before he was circumcised, just like these people who you're putting down. And so he is the father of the uncircumcised as well as those who are circumcised. And to those who had been growing up in that Hebrew tradition... Imagine finding out that all those things that you have been doing, they're not wrong, they're not bad, but that's not what makes you right before God. And so he's not putting them down saying they were useless, all oh, this means nothing. No, they was valid. God used these things to be an example, but that's not what makes you right before God. And isn't it a difficult thing when someone shows you that your way of thinking is wrong? It's one of the hardest things to recognize. You know, I've gone through a lot of rethinking over the last few, well, I don't know, 10 years maybe, where the way I saw Christian faith was in one line of thinking, and then I had to stop and step back and say, well, this doesn't really line up with Jesus, who we claim to be our Lord. Jesus lived this way, and what we're doing is living this way. And we're alienating all these people in the name of Jesus. And Jesus was drawing these people to himself. I had someone come up to me. As many of you know, I I did a memorial uh, for my cousin's husband this past Saturday. And it was beautiful. And I thank you guys for just the prayer and all the things that uh, your encouragement to me. And there were so many people who feel like they could not go to a church because they would not be welcomed. And you might say, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. No one should feel that way. But how do you treat people who are outside of your faith? How do you treat people who are Muslim or Buddhist? And if they came, would you worry about them? Would you think, what are you dressed up like that for? Or if someone came in who is homosexual... Would you treat them with the same love and kindness, or would you have reservation towards them? How would you interact with them? Would they feel welcome? Would you let them know that God loves them as much as he loves you? Or do you think you're better because you're a Christian and you don't do certain things, you don't worship certain gods, and so I'm a little bit better than you? Why? Because I have my own Torah. Yeah, I read the Bible, I pray, I go to church, right? No, how are you right before God? You're right before God because of what God did in the person of Jesus, not because you do certain things. And so God loves all those people just as much as he loves you. And if they come into our community and feel anything except welcomed, we make them feel like second-class citizens. Well, you're welcome here, but you need to... Do that, 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 I can go on such a tangent right now. I'm not going to. We have our own hoops that we want people to jump through. And it's interesting, you know, if, if someone came up to you and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Your answer would probably not be the same as Jesus was because you have learned things differently. When someone came up to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't say, well, you need to repent of your sins, accept me as your savior. Have a little altar call, why don't you come down, raise your hand right now. Alex, would you play a song? We'll have you step down, you know. That's not what he said. Read the gospel, see what he said. And it's probably not what you would think. And you start seeing that we start putting divisions here and start thinking of things differently than the way Jesus himself thought of things. Because we get in our own tradition and it's common for people. Okay, I better stop. Verse 13 to 17. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all. Abraham's offspring Bless you. It's not those who are of the law. Remember, when he says of the law, he's talking about the Hebrew ethnicity, those who were given the Torah. It's not those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. In these verses, Paul amplifies what we saw at the end of chapter three, that circumcision was given, but Abraham was recognized as righteousness as righteous before that was given. The question that arises from what we have read in chapter three is that if we are all God's covenant people, then how are we now going to be incorporated into this family of Abraham? In other words, okay, if we're all God's people, then what's the point of Abraham? Why is he there? and Why did God choose him? And how are we incorporated there? And he tells us in verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. That's everyone who is, believing, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have faith, the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And so it's not just the law, it's not just the ethnic Israel, it is to all of us. This is the full answer to the question that we had in verse one. What shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? No, not according to the flesh, but according to faith. See, we have Abraham as our father, According to faith, not according to the flesh. I'm not a Jew. I'm a mix. I'm Italian and Indian. I'm I'm a smorgasbord. Okay, I'm not a descendant by the flesh, but I am a descendant through faith. He is my father by faith, and so we recognize that this faith is an important part of this. That Paul is now using Genesis 15 to help us revitalize this idea of what it is to follow the law. He's using Genesis 15 to relativize Genesis 17, where God tells him to be circumcised, to say that circumcision was there for a time. It was good, but Abraham is still father of us all, not just those who are descended to him by the flesh. Now, why is this so important? Because he is trying to bring unity. He's trying to show the Jewish Christians that these Gentile Christians are your brothers through faith. And that is something that is just hard for them to grasp hold of. No, we, we can't accept them. They worshiped pagan gods. We had the true God, the worship of one God, hero Israel, the Lord of God. We were given the law. We have these things. And Paul's saying, no, their father is your father, not through the flesh, but through faith. And what God had meant to do all along with Abraham, he did through the person, the faithful Israelite, Jesus But he did this before the law, before the circumcision. So you need to embrace who they are as well, because they are your brothers. And he goes on, he says at the end of verse 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Remember, as we've been going through and as we had our our line, the Jewish people, when they were in exile, they were separated from God. They were being ruled by pagan nations. Ezekiel had a prophecy saying he saw bones, and these bones came back to life. Muscle and sinew came, and God breathed life into them. And that was a representation of them to the nation of Israel that God was going to raise us back up from the dead. And Paul is saying he did raise you back up from the dead. He did it in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so God who gives life to the dead, just like he prophesied of to Ezekiel about the nation of Israel. When did that take place? Well, it hadn't taken place yet. It hadn't pl- taken place in their time. It had to take place Is that supposed to be at the end of all things? And Paul is saying it did take place. It took place in the person of Jesus. And he calls into being things that were not. When he's talking about things that were not, the Gentiles were not covenant members. Things that were not, well, they weren't part of Abraham's family, but they are now. So the resurrection of the dead and the things that are not are most likely us Gentile believers who are now part of the family, covenant members with the Jewish people through the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's brought us together. In verse 18 it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, So shall your offspring be without weakening. In his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is why he is part of that covenant membership. This is why he got the badge. This is why he has the little nameplate that says, I am a covenant member with God, because he trusted God and he grasped the true nature and promise of God, that God was the life giver, that God could fulfill the promise even though his body could not that God promised to him these things and he promises it to us as well. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone. The promise is for us as well. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Promise always included faith, not merely the law, because the promise always envisioned the entire world. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. The promise God gave for Abraham wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for the whole world. God has always planned on a single worldwide family. Abraham is the father to us all, not just according to the flesh, but according to faith. Remember, what Paul is trying to do here is amazing. He is developing colonies of a new humanity. A humanity that is in Jesus Christ. A humanity that is not Jew, not Gentile, not male, not female, not free, not slave. One in Christ. One through what Christ has done. One in faith. And who is this God who made the promise? It's the God of Abraham. God who gives life to the dead, calls into being things that were not. God who is doing the impossible. Abraham's faith is the truly human stance. He believed in God, the life giver, and so do you if you believe in the gospel. You see, when we believe in what is the gospel, Jesus is Lord. When we believe in the gospel, we believe in the same life giver that Abraham believed in. We have the same hope that Abraham had, but we're seeing the fulfillment of it. Abraham was given the promise. Jesus is the answer to the promise. And that's where we pick up. That's where we come in. And so he's summing up the death and resurrection of Jesus as means of dealing with sin and establishing a new people of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God. God had to deal with sin. He did. He did it through the person of Jesus. The nation of Israel had to deal with their disobedience. They were. They were put into exile. But they weren't able to rectify things. God was through the person of Jesus. Paul has now put Christian faith as the new badge, the new covenant member, membership into the the map. He's saying, Okay, I, I've got a new name tag for you, and it includes the name Jesus. You are under Christ. That's your new membership into the covenant family of God. You're now on the map of Abraham's faith, and shows that Abraham's faith was the true covenant faith all along. And what we're seeing here is what God has said. God has indeed called out a people for himself being faithful to his covenant in the Messiah Jesus and creating a worldwide family. Jesus is the means whereby the creator has created the true covenant family. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus is the means of revealing to the world this covenant faithfulness and creating this new family. Jesus is what is uniting us in purpose. Jew and Gentile. We are left with certain questions that Paul is going to then answer. He's going to ask us then, how is this advancing the mission of unity? How is this going to take place? How can we, in this declaration of what's taken place, how can we be clear and reflect who God's son is? And what's God's purpose then for Israel? Is there... Still a purpose for the nation of Israel or is has that changed? What do you guys think? Think about it. Because we're going to have to answer that. Has it changed? Might be surprised at the answer. Any questions? Yes? It's the law. Um, the Torah... The Torah is the first five books of the law. Yeah, the Hebrew scriptures. Written by Moses. Moses and other people who wrote that Moses probably copied and put down. in the other. Any other questions? Any thoughts on this? Think about this as we move forward. Just even that question I asked. If God has made us one, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Are we still trying to make a separation of Jew and Gentile when we say that the nation of Israel has a further purpose? Aren't we saying that? Then why? Did, what was the purpose of making us one if there's still a secondary purpose? Something to think about. Okay. Do, is there something more that needs to be added to what Christ has done? Everyone says no, right? No, I can't say that. No, that's enough. Then what are we trying to do when we bring the nation of Israel into another place? Do they have something else to do? Because I know a lot of us have heard that. Just asking a question so that you can process it in our mind because I think Paul is taking us somewhere else through this book. And it's real important. The whole idea of covenant faithfulness is at the heart of this book. That's why you keep hearing that term over and over again. Because that's what he's dealing with. And that's going to be real important when we get to chapters 9 through 11. When he starts talking about things like Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. What the heck are you saying? Do you love some people and hate other people, God? He's still dealing with covenant faithfulness. That question. Okay, well, let's pray and finish eating the desserts and things that are there and just hang out. Again, if you have any questions, please uh, don't hesitate, to ask. Father, thank you again for the important things that are expressed in this book. Father, things that we need to embrace today and maybe on a little bit different level, Lord, where there was tension between Jew and Gentile. Father, I think there's tension in the Christian world today. There is so... There is such a lack of unity, Lord. We don't see ourselves as one humanity. We we've divided ourselves in so many places in so many ways, and I think it's to our own detriment, Lord. May we embrace the things that are important, may we let go of the things that aren't. May we not make a new Torah that we follow. May we embrace what you have done through. Jesus and may we make that good news known to everybody. And so help us, Lord, to understand more fully what it means when we say the gospel. What what is that good news? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It's not just a term, it's connected to not only the person but to the Messiah, to Christ, someone who is promised someone who is the fulfillment of a promise you made to Abraham and to the human race a long, long time ago. Lord, may we understand these things fully so that we could share them more clearly and more effectively. We do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.